Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day and this Sabbath, this reminder of creation and redemption. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts as we reflect on your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit that inspires, would instruct, would enlighten our minds and speak to our hearts. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our message this morning is entitled, What is the Everlasting Gospel? And I want to begin by pointing our attention to a picture of a man by the name of Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world. And since the year 2000, Warren Buffett has been auctioning on eBay an opportunity to have lunch with him. The first auction and the opportunity sold for $25,000. And in 2019, they broke the record for the highest bid to have the opportunity to have lunch with Warren Buffett, $4.6 million. I wish someone would pay me to have lunch. $4.6 million. And they would ask these individuals, the question, was it worth it? And they would always say, yes. Absolutely. To have a conversation face-to-face with the greatest mind in the financial world, this encounter, this conversation with Warren Buffett, worth every single penny. This morning, I'd like to talk about a conversation, a face-to-face encounter with a being that is smarter than Warren Buffett. Amen? We're told that in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve had the unique opportunity of having a face-to-face encounter with God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the day walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I wonder what that was like. You ever wonder what it would have been like to have a face-to-face encounter with God? Eyeball to eyeball, to hear His voice, the infinite mind of God with the finite mind of man. What would you do if Jesus were to walk into this room right now? What would be your reaction, your emotion, your psychological state? I remember one time I met someone famous. Going to the bathroom, public bathroom, opened the door, won't tell you who he was, don't want it to be distracting, opened the door, and there he was in the flesh, famous man. And it was kind of weird because I felt like I knew him. The problem was he didn't know me. (laughs) Open the door, ah, and I didn't say hi. I just was like, ugh, and just walked around him and then told everybody, did you know who I saw at the public restroom when I opened the door? What is it going to be like when you see Jesus face to face? Is it going to be awkward? 
Is it going to be like, oh, I know about you? Or worse yet, are you going to call for the mountains and the rocks to fall on you and hide you from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb? It wasn't like that in Eden. The face-to-face encounter with God was a beautiful experience, and we're told in the book Education, page 21, the Garden of Eden was the schoolroom, university. Nature was the lesson book. The Creator Himself was the instructor. And the parents of the human family were the students. Often as they walked in the garden, in the cool of the day, they heard the voice of God. And the face-to-face communion with the eternal. This was the first university, the greatest professor, the greatest educator humans have ever encountered, and it was in Eden that they had this face-to-face encounter with the infinite mind of God, and praise the Lord, it was free. It didn't cost $4.6 million. She goes on. The book Education, page 15, face-to-face, heart-to-heart communion with his Maker was his high privilege. Had he remained loyal to God, all this would have been his forever. So in Edenic perfection, the relationship with God was face-to-face. The encounter, the communion with God, dynamic, educational, enriching, enlightening, There was a story told of a man and a woman. They were married. And the man was always getting a little bit irritated with his wife because she always wanted to talk about their relationship. Judging by the laughter, maybe you're having this conversation in your marriage as well. Typical man, he said, why do we need to talk about our relationship? We are in a relationship. Isn't it just good enough to be in the relationship? Why do we need to always talk about it? And it became an irritable source of, of tension in their marriage. Finally, one day, Eureka, the man, had a moment of enlightenment. The conversation was the relationship. Our lives change slowly, then dramatically, one conversation at a time. You can think of instances in your lives when you had a dynamic conversation with someone and it dramatically changed your relationship. You end the conversation, you end the relationship. And many times we talk about a relationship with God. The conversation is the relationship. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God, face-to-face, communion with the infinite God. And yet, we see that after the fall, that dynamic face-to-face encounter was no longer possible. They were no longer able to be in the presence of the almighty Shekinah glory that emanated from the presence of God. They were led outside of the gate and we see the change in the relationship 
in the conversation that Moses has with God on Mount Sinai, and Moses has the audacity to ask God, show me your glory, and you'll notice what the Bible says. In answer to Moses' question, Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, and God said, you cannot see my what? You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. What has happened? This is only one book removed from the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, able to have that face-to-face communion with God. And here is Moses, a righteous man. And he asks God to show him his glory. And God says, look, you can't see my face. Not that I don't want to show it to you, but if I show you my face, you can't live. And God, in his mercy, says, look, I'm going to do something for you. And you read on in Exodus chapter 33, verse 21 through 23. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God says, look, there's a crack in the rock. I'm going to put you in the crack. I'm going to cover that crack with my hand. And as I walk by, by, I'm going to remove my hand and you can peer out and see my back. You can imagine Moses there hovering in the cleft of the rock as the glory of God passes by. Maybe he's closing his eyes because the glory is so transcendent and beautiful. And then God says, I'm removing my hand now, Moses. And Moses peers out and looks at the back, not the face, the back of God. Remember what happened after that encounter with God? He comes down from the mountain and Moses' face is lit up. It's lit up so much that the children of Israel said, We can't look at your face. Please put a veil on your face. This is after looking at the back of God. A change in the conversation. A change in the relationship. No longer face-to-face communion with God. In 1 Samuel... The Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines. They have some trouble with that dynamic. They decide to send the Ark of the Covenant back. You remember the story. They have a bullock that is pulling an ox cart, goes straight to the camp of Israel, a town of Israel called Beshemish. And the Ark of the Covenant was always covered, and it was taken to Beshemish, and the children of Israel gathered around the Ark of the Covenant, and they uncovered the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents the glory of God, the presence of God. You were never to look at the Ark of the Covenant. They uncovered it. Immediately, 70 people consumed. And this is what they say. 1 Samuel 6, verse 20. Who can stand in the presence of a holy God? Look at the nuance of the statement. 
who can what? Who can stand in the presence of a holy God. This is when they encounter the Shekinah glory, the Ark of the Covenant, who can stand in the presence of a holy God. And this is re-echoed in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Look at the question. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? In other words, what is the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord? Mount Zion. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand? Have you heard that word before? And who shall stand in his holy place? The question is asked, who can stand on Mount Zion? Who can stand in the presence of a holy God? And the answer is, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus says this in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The criteria for being able to stand in the presence of God, the criteria for being able to see the face of God, is a pure heart. In the Old Testament, the high priest had a golden band that was placed over the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex. It was a golden band, and it had the Hebrew words, holiness, to the Lord. The Bible uses a certain terminology to describe what that was saying in Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal. As on a what? A seal holy to the Lord. The high priest was the only individual that was able to go into the very presence of God in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. And notice what he is wearing, a golden plate over the forehead that says, Holy to the Lord. Now, Jesus is our high priest, amen? And Jesus is holy. The high priest was a type of Christ. The high priest is our representative. And that face-to-face encounter is made possible by a priest representing Jesus with a golden plate over his forehead that says, Holy to the Lord. Now, it's interesting because in the Hebrew, we can see a parallel between this verse that we see here in Exodus chapter 28, verse 36, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Those same Hebrew words, holy to the Lord, are found in Exodus chapter 31, verse 15. Look at this. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. What does it say? Holy to the Lord. Do you see that? Same exact Hebrew words. Holy to the Lord over the the seal that is over the high priest's forehead is ascribed to the seventh day Sabbath. Holy to the Lord. You making some connections here? And here in the book of Hebrews, which is all about the sanctuary and our heavenly high priest, comes right out and says, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Don't let anyone fool you. The criteria 
for being able to see God face to face is holiness. It's not unholiness. Holiness is the criteria for that face-to-face encounter with God. Now, if you're like me, I feel very inadequate because I am unholy. So how do we deal with this high bar for being able to see the face of God. Yes, it doesn't cost $4.6 million to have that face-to-face encounter with God, but the criteria is holiness. Now, how are we to relate to this incredibly, impossible condition for being able to see the face of God? Is it anxiety? Is it unrest? And here we have it in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. Every Sabbath today is a reminder not only that God made a day holy, but that God can make you holy. Amen? And what do we do on this day? Do we work? We rest. Ah. In other words, our experience, even though I haven't arrived, even though I'm a work in progress, even though I have issues inherited and cultivated, even though I have a colored past, I don't have an experience of anxiety because every seven days I'm reminded that I rest in the assurance that God is the one and the only one that can make me holy. Can you say amen? Amen. And so rest in that assurance today. Our experience with God is not one of anxiety. It's not one of a lack of peace. Oh yes, we've got a long way to go. But praise God, I'm a long way from where I was. And every seven days, because we need to be reminded of this, that God is the only one that can make us holy. And we rest in that assurance. Hallelujah. In the book of Revelation, we have a scene. Then the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Jesus is coming. And these individuals are running from the face of God. Notice what they say. They say, hide us from the face Hide us from his face. We don't want to see the face of God. And they ask this question that was asked in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, for who shall be able to stand? The question is asked. Now, there's an interlude in the book of Revelation. You have the first seal, the second seal, third, fourth, fifth, 
sixth seal, and between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, you have an interlude. The interlude is answering this question. It's the same question that was asked in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? The question is asked here. Who shall be able to stand? Who's going to be able to stand in the face of God? And the answer is given in Revelation chapter 7. There were no chapter divisions. These are given for your convenience. And what comes in Revelation chapter 7? Remember, four angels are holding the four winds, and they say they're told not to release the winds until the servants of their God are sealed where? On their forehead. Here it is, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. Who shall be able to stand in the presence of a holy God? Who can stand in his face? Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal. Does that sound familiar? Until we put a seal. Where? on the forehead of the servants of our God. What did the high priest have on his forehead? A seal. What did it say? Holiness to the Lord. The servants of God are to have a seal on their forehead. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Who shall be able to stand? Who can stand in the face of a holy God? Those that are sealed on their foreheads. The 144,000. These are the individuals that are able to stand in the presence of a holy God. These are the individuals that are not running from the face of Jesus. Why? They have something on their forehead. Revelation chapter 14, which is the focus of our series this weekend, and we're focusing specifically on the three angels' message. The preamble to the three angels' message begins with a scene. And it's found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Remember in Revelation chapter 7, you have the 144,000. You have another scene of the 144,000. Here it is, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before him was the Lamb. And what is the lamb doing? He's standing. Where is the lamb standing? He's standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written where? Written on their foreheads. The preamble to the three angels' message begins with a description of the 144,000. And they are standing in the face of Jesus Christ, before the face of Jesus Christ. They're standing with him on Mount Zion. They're standing in the holy place. And they have the name of Jesus, the name of the Father, written on their forehead. Now we come to this question. What is the everlasting gospel. Remember, the preamble to the everlasting gospel is this scene of the 144,000 standing with Jesus, and they have the Father's name written on their forehead. They're standing before the face of God, and this is the pretext, the context, the preamble 
to the three angels' message, and here we have it. What is the everlasting gospel? Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The everlasting gospel. How do we know what it is? Are we going to ask our Roman Catholic friends? Are we going to ask our Sunday-keeping Protestant brothers and sisters? Each one has a different understanding of what the gospel is. Each one has a different lens through which to view the gospel. But we're already given the lens through which to understand the gospel. We need to recognize that the telos, the goal, the end that God wants to bring us is all the way back to that face-to-face encounter that Adam and Eve had before the fall. And you see that this is made possible because of the Lamb. The Lamb is standing there with the 144,000. They are restored back to that face-to-face encounter with God because God has written His law in our hearts and they have the Father's name written on their foreheads. And any gospel that gives you a discount on that experience of that face-to-face restoration, that relationship with God, which is communion, which is conversation, is a false gospel. The everlasting gospel is all about bringing us back to that face-to-face encounter that Adam and Eve had before the fall. What is the very essence of the gospel? We don't have to guess. Book Desire of Ages, page 824. The very essence of the gospel is restoration. What is the essence of the gospel? Restoration. On the screen, I have a bird's eye view of the sanctuary. Three compartments. Very simple, courtyard, holy place, most holy place. God has illustrated in kindergarten form how God is going to bring us back. What is the essence of the gospel? It is restoration. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were here, face-to-face encounter with God. After the fall, the entire human race is out here. And God wants to restore that face-to-face encounter. He brings us into the courtyard, delivers us, and pardons us from the penalty of sin. He brings us into the holy place, delivers us from the power of sin. And finally, in glorification, delivers us from the presence of sin. There are false gospels out there that want to give you a one-third discount on the sanctuary motif. They say, oh, all you need to do is just come in here and camp out. That's it. Others go here and replace our heavenly high priest with the earthly high priest and replace this with the seven sacraments. But God wants to bring us here, here, here. And it's made possible by two entities. The lamb and the priest. 
when you sinned at the time of Israel, you had to bring a lamb, bring him to the gate of the sanctuary, confess over that lamb your sins, and with your own hand, slit the throat of that innocent lamb. And then there was a priest that would catch the blood. And that blood was taken into the holy place. You did never, you never took your own bowl of blood into the holy place. You needed a priest to apply the benefits of that sacrifice on your behalf. And that priest would place a record of those forgiven sins either on the veil or on the horns of the altar. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, they had a cleansing of the sanctuary. The important thing for us to recognize is that the whole sin problem is eliminated through this process that God has illustrated in kindergarten form. God brings us from the courtyard into the holy place, into that face-to-face encounter with God. This is the very essence of the everlasting gospel. This is the message of restoration. Book Education says this, page 15 and 16, to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created to promote the development of body, mind, and soul that divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. Education, page 15 and 16. Adam and Eve, in Edenic perfection, were able to have a face-to-face encounter with God. I asked earlier in the presentation, what would you do if Jesus walked into this room right now? What would be your emotional reaction? If you're honest with yourselves, and there have been times in my Christian experience when I was not right with God. You ever have a relationship with someone and the relationship has soured and they're coming down the hallway and what do you do? You avoid them. I've seen people at the supermarket that I had a little bit of something with and I ducked down the aisle. I don't want to see them. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. You don't want to have a conversation with them. It's not like, hi, and then they see you and they're like, hi, and you're like, oh, hi. The Bible says that sins have separated us from God. And so, if Jesus were to walk into this room right now, there would be one of two reactions, according to Scripture. Either you would duck out of the room and find the fastest exit, crawl out so that He doesn't see us, or we say, I know you. This is my God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us. One day, we're going to be able to see the face of God. And today, we have the unique opportunity to prepare for that face-to-face.
face-to-face encounter. Amen? Revelation chapter 22, last chapter, last book of the Bible. Notice how it begins. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now, picture this. What does John the Revelator see? He sees the tree of life. Where was the tree of life earlier in Scripture? In Eden. This is the last book of the Bible. You're seeing the tree of life. This is Eden restored. God is sitting on his throne, and there is a river of life that is coming from the throne of God. This echoes what Ezekiel is seeing when you see a river coming from the sanctuary. And and this river is going down, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, and I've seen artist depictions, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to be, but if you can imagine in your sanctified imagination, the tree of life joins somehow in the middle, going over the tree, or over the river of life, and it's going down, and so you're you're seeing a scene of Eden restored. Eden lost, Eden restored. What is the essence of the gospel? Restoration. Notice what John the Revelator says after this. Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. After describing the tree of life, notice what he says. And they shall see his what? Did you hear that? In Eden, they were able to have that conversation with God face to face. Revelation chapter 22. And they shall see his face. Friends, that's the goal of the everlasting gospel. That's all about a relationship because the conversation is the relationship. And they shall see his face. Why are they able to see the face of God? Because the Father's name is written on their forehead. What is the criteria for being able to see the face of God? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Praise the Lord that it is His righteousness that enables us to see the face of God. Amen? And we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to worry. We rest in that assurance as typified by the Sabbath experience. You may be like David I want to see the face of God, but do I have to wait to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, to see the face of God? We're told that by beholding, we become changed. How can I become changed if I can't see the face of God until Revelation chapter 22? And there's a statement in the book, Desire of Ages, page 23. Had Jesus appeared with the glory that was his before the Father with the Father before the world was, we could not have endured the light of His presence, that we might behold it and not be destroyed. 
the manifestation of his glory was shrouded. His divinity was veiled with humanity. The invisible glory in the visible human form. In other words, Jesus bridged the gap. Remember that vision that Jacob had, that dream, the ladder going to heaven? That ladder represents Jesus. And notice what the Desire of Ages says. His divinity was veiled with humanity. The invisible glory in visible human form. The book of John says that the, the glory of God the Word tabernacled with us. When you look at the Ark of the Covenant and the Mosaic Sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant was sitting on the ground. There was no barrier between heaven and earth. Heaven had come all the way down. But it was wrapped. It was veiled. You were not able to look directly at the Shekinah glory. And Jesus, when He came, He wrapped Himself. He veiled the Shekinah glory in humanity. So that you, when you looked at the face of Jesus, you were looking at the face of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, listen to this, the light of the knowledge of the what? Of the glory of God is found where? In the face of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait to Revelation chapter 22, friends. You can look at the face of God today. Right now. Because heaven has come down. Hallelujah. Divinity clothed itself in humanity. And by looking at the face of Jesus, you could look at the face of God. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, talking about how Moses' face was veiled, he says, but we, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory. Jesus is in heaven, ministering in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. We can't see the physical face of God. But we're told in the book Steps to Christ that if you would become acquainted with the Savior, study the Holy Scriptures. Jesus is the Word. Every time you read the Word, you're looking at the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Every time you read about his character, you're looking at divinity that has been clothed in humanity. And there's a transformation that takes place. And the Father's name is being written on your forehead from glory to glory, from character to character, from faith to faith and from day to day. I was at a ministerial retreat 
and staying with a young man that was also a minister. I was single at the time. He was happily married. And so I asked him the question in between seminars, how did you meet your wife? And so he told me the story. He met his wife on one of these Adventist dating websites. My interest perked up. She was overseas in Asia, thousands of miles away. He was living in the United States. And so they got acquainted online, met initially through the Adventist dating website and then went on to Skype and so forth and conversations on a regular basis, communion, connection, virtually. And then he told me something that that shocked me. He said, you know, David, I fell in love with this woman and I proposed to her without ever having met face to face. I said, my brother. (laughs) I said, you did what? He said, I proposed to her, but it gets better. He said, not just did I propose to her, we set the wedding date. And the first time that I met her face to face was the moment that I flew out there to marry her. And I said, you did what? (laughs) I said, you mean to tell me that the only time that you had an encounter with this woman was virtually through the, through the internet, through, through, through video and through phone calls, and then you proposed to this woman? I mean, why not just pay the plane ticket? You think like it's a good investment to go out there at least once and meet the woman that you're going to spend the rest of your life with face to face? He said, no, no, no. That's what I did. I said, my brother, what were you going to do if you got off that plane and you look at this woman that's about to be your wife and you said, Lord, what have I done? (laughs) The cake's ready, the dress is there, the groomsman. And he said something. He said, you know, David, it was the strangest thing because we spent so much time together that when I got off the plane, and looked at this woman for the face, first time, face to face, picked up right where we left off. Seamless. Went from the virtual relationship to the face to face relationship, and it was seamless, and they're married happily to this day. Now, this is not descri- prescriptive, young people. This is descriptive, it's an illustration. I'm not recommending that everyone go out there and try this. Side note. But one day, we're going to see God face to face. Amen? This is our God. We have waited for Him. He will save us. You're going to be able to look at the face of God. And if right now, on a daily basis, we spend time in His Word, being transformed from glory to glory. Hallelujah. In a communion, conversation with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that when He comes in the clouds of glory and you see Him face to face, seamless. Huh? It's not awkward. 
You don't want to hide from his face. It's not as though it's like, I know you, I kind of know you, but you don't know me. It's, I know you. Face to face. And you begin that eternal journey with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it just go, keeps on going right where you left off. Hallelujah. How many of you want to be holding today in His Word? Amen. How many of you want to be transformed and have the Father's name written on your foreheads? How many of you today want to stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion because His name is on your forehead? Praise His name. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You for the Lamb. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You that You want to write Your name on our foreheads. You want to bring us back to that face-to-face communion that Adam and Eve had before the fall. May we behold Jesus today through Your Word. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.